Good afternoon and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU. My name is CJ Walk and I am the host for the show. And for today's show, we are going to talk about some basics around uh, vegetable gardening for the home gardener with my guests, uh, Caleb Goosen, who is Mofka's organic crop and conservation specialist, and Kara Fitzgerald, who works for Humane Cooperative Extension uh, out of the Kennebec County office. Today's show is a recording of a conversation I had with Caleb and Kara on May 5th. And since it is a recording, we are not able to take any phone calls uh, on today's show. Thank you. So today on Common Ground Radio, I am speaking with uh, Kara Fitzgerald, who is Associate Extension Professor with UMaine Cooperative Extension, and also Caleb Goosen, who is the Organic Crops and Conservation Specialist with MOFCA. And we are going to talk today a little bit about the basics of uh, home gardening. So first, I'd like to just jump back to the two guests I have with me here today to ask them to speak just a little bit about the work they do in, in general. Um, and Kara, if I could start with you. Thanks, CJ. It's good to be here with you today. So I work out of our Kennebec County Extension Office, and I work with farmers and gardeners on plant-related issues. So that's everything from pastures and corn silage to vegetables, and that does include home gardeners and our Master Gardener Volunteers Program. Do a lot of uh, troubleshooting, teaching programs, and doing some research, too. Great. Okay. Well, thanks for being here today. And Caleb, if I could jump over to you for a little bit of an introduction. Sure. Uh, it's very similar. Um, I was hired as Mofka's organic crop specialist to take the place of Eric Seidman as he was phasing into retirement. And uh, he's long said that he was the, the country's first organic extension agent, but in quotation marks, because uh, MAFCA is not a part of the university uh, system, so we're not true extension in that sense. However, uh, I, I do many of the same uh, services where I try to help uh, anybody who's trying to grow organically um, with their questions uh, around production and, and issues like that. Okay, great. Well, thanks again for, for both being here uh, with, with me today. Um, so just to kind of start out to talk about some basics of gardening, I wanted to start just right with the soil, you know, right, right beneath our feet here. And um, Caleb, if I could just kind of look to you for maybe a bit of a, um, an explanation around how soil is really the focus of organic gardening and, and farming and what that's based on. Sure. Uh, one, of, one of the um, often said mantras of organic growing is feed the soil, not the crop. Uh, and that idea being that you don't want to be spoon feeding plants, um, synthetic nutrients, uh, and, and have them be reliant on that. Whereas if instead you're, you're building a healthy soil um, that also contains enough of those nutrients, you're getting other benefits at the same time. Uh, you, you tend to have healthier plants and healthier microbe plant interactions. And that's what a lot of the focus is on. And Cara, I didn't know if you had anything that you would want to add to 
kind of that soil health piece before we get into some of the some of the details and basics. Sure, um, I think Caleb's uh, done a good summary there of what we try to do in terms of um, plant nutrition and setting up a good environment for our garden plants to grow and. Um, I also want to, at some point, uh, whether it's here or a little bit later, make sure we talk about making sure we've got the right place for the plants we're trying to grow. So that site selection piece is really important too. But in terms of, and I'll just kind of ask either one of you, but in terms of soil basics, um, I know we look at say like a soil test or some of the things we look at to try to get an idea of the quality of our soil maybe things around the pH and maybe organic matter percentages and fertility levels of different nutrients. Um, maybe Cara, could you speak a little bit to maybe that piece around, let's talk about pH and what does, what does that mean in our garden soil? Yeah, so the pH is a measure of acidity or alkalinity in the soil with seven being neutral, below seven is acidic, which is where most of our soils in Maine tend to be naturally above seven is alkaline. And pH is really important because it affects the availability of different nutrients in the soil. So at a lower pH, it's harder for um, nutrients to be available for, um, for the plants. Phosphorus is a really important one that's affected that way. So if a grower does nothing more than check and adjust for soil pH, that's a great first step. They, as a home gardener, you really should be doing more if you can, uh, but that's a first step. It also can be kind of a window into what the what the gardener's been doing. So when I see a soil test result that has very high pH, so for our soils in the sevens or even up getting close to eight, I ask them about how much wood ash they've been adding because wood ash also raises soil pH. Sometimes people don't realize that. So they, they add a lot on their gardens because they need to get rid of it, not because the soil needs it. Okay. So that has a kind of a similar effect to liming in terms of raising, raising the pH of the yep. soil. Um, Caleb, can I ask you kind of around the organic matter piece? Like what, is, what does that mean when we're talking about uh, organic matter in the soil? Well, I think actually for both organic matter and soil pH, I first take a step back and I look at soil texture, um, which is just the, the word we use to describe uh, what kind of soil it is in terms of, is it sandy, is it silty, is there a lot of clay, uh, or even a little bit of clay can have a big impact on a soil texture. And that soil texture is usually strongly, strongly related with both soil pH uh, and uh, soil organic matter holding capability, sort of a there's a, there's a carrying capacity of how much organic matter a soil could theoretically have because it's always being accumulated and it's always um, being lost in any soil. With that in mind, uh, a, a kind of some rules of thumb is that if you just stumbled into a soil that hadn't had any human interaction with it in, before you, uh, the sandier soils tend to be more acidic. Uh, they're very free draining. Um, so for a garden, you're gonna have to be able to add water often, uh, at least in a dry time. Um, and they also tend to, because it, that's because they're sandy soil particles, they're larger, they let water drain through, there's bigger gaps in between them. And that also allows more air, more oxygen into the soil. And that means that organic matter uh, gets uh, used up a little more quickly by, by soil microbial life. 
so sandier soils tend to be a little more acidic. They don't hold on to organic matter as well, as easily. And on the other end of the spectrum, the clay soils, they don't tend to drain very well. Um, those are the ones where you see sort of swampy spots. Sometimes that's because it's clay soil. Uh, those can be very acidic. And, uh, and the way that sandy and, and clay soils interact with limine and that shifting of the pH is different, but we can get into that later. Um, but those, those clay soils, because they don't have as much room in them for oxygen, they don't burn through organic matter nearly as quickly. So they tend to have a, a large amount of organic matter uh, holding capacity. Um, and that organic matter is really important when we're talking about soil health for all soils, um, because it's that, that cycling of organic matter that uh, really provides benefits to our plants. Um, the organic matter can help hold a lot of nutrients, but for that to be released for a plant to take up, uh, the organic matter has to be broken down by soil, typically bacterial life in the soil, but all the entire uh, microbiome of the, of the soil, the entire biological system that's happening there. I mean, you mentioned sand particles being rather large particles. When we get down to clay, those are the much finer, finer pieces, and that packs together, I guess, which is why you would see less, less oxygen there. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's true in a couple ways. One is just the smaller the particle, the closer they can sit to each other, and that leaves less room for pore space, for water or air to go through. The other is that uh, clay soils tend to get compacted uh, more easily. Um, so it already starts out with less pore space for air and water, and then if it gets compacted, either, you know, anything you're doing, working with a soil when it's too wet, you're, you're risking compaction. Uh, and the more weight on it, the more of that risk. Clay soils are particularly prone to that compaction and that just makes that, that resulting pore space even, even more impacted and, and reduced. All right, and then in thinking of Kara, I was going to jump back to you in terms of some of the measures of the fertility in the soil when we talk about different nutrients. You mentioned in talking about the pH, how that would affect the availability of some of those nutrients in the soil. Um, and maybe could you just say something about some of the, some of the major nutrients that we're, that we're looking at to have present in our garden soils? Certainly. So our macronutrients are nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Uh, it's phosphorus and potassium that are typically measured in our soil tests. Nitrogen often isn't because it changes forms very easily and some of those forms are very quickly lost. Um, if your samples go to the University of Maine, you can have nitrogen tested, but it's really only relevant during the growing season. Um, so nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium are the macronutrients calcium, magnesium being uh, the secondary nutrients, and then there's a whole slew of micronutrients that typically are not deficient in our soils, especially if folks are using any sorts of manure-based manure or manure-based compost in the soil. Um, so it's important to get uh, in the in the area of where you need to in terms of supplying those nutrients knowing that if you have a lot of organic matter in the soil, as you might if you've been adding a lot of compost or manure through the years, that has a residual capacity to supply nutrients. Caleb mentioned that um, when he talked about building up the soil and that um, ability to release nutrients over time from organic matter that's there. 
So it seems like that organic matter piece is, is kind of where the nutrients are stored for long-term availability. It's not the only place. So some, some nutrients can be stored uh, affiliated with, um, with the mineral portions of the soil. Phosphorus is a big one that does that. Uh, but for soils that are high in organic matter, they do tend to store a lot of nutrients in that um, organic fraction of the soil. Um, and a third portion or a third area where nutrients can be stored is actually in the bodies of the living organisms within the soil. So uh, the microbial biomass in particular. Okay. And then as those microbes are reproducing and decomposing over time, is that how those, those nutrients can be released into the soil? Right. So, so the microbes may take up the nutrients and once it's in the little microbial bodies, it's not available to the plants. But when those microbes die, then it is released into soil solution and um, can be taken up into the, the plants at that point. That's a, another area that brings me back to soil texture, um, that, that mineral associated uh, bit of soil fertility, where nutrients are, they, they, it's sort of like a static charge, uh, a magnetic attraction to uh, clay particles in the soil. A sandy soil that has very little clay uh, doesn't have as much innate ability to hold nutrients in it. And therefore, if you had the same sandy soil with a lot more organic matter, it would have a lot more capacity to hold nutrients over the long term and to cycle them through microbes and uh, in and in and out of forms that are available to plants. And I'd add to that related to soil texture is that some of these processes like for our cations are positively charged nutrients. Um, a lot of those actions are occur at the surfaces. So there just is not a lot of surface area for the large particles compared to many, many small particles. So that's, that's one of the reasons why for some nutrients, um, there's greater nutrient holding capacity from the finer textured soils. And then I just wanted to ask, kind of thinking about that, that soil piece, when if people are looking to start new gardens, you had mentioned, Kara, I mentioned that typically our soils in Maine, at least are going to be on the acidic side and wood ash raising the pH. But I know that liming is also very common, which you mentioned in, in order to to raise the pH and what is that? I'm just curious if you could explain maybe what that, how that happens, what that maybe reaction in the soil might be when you, when you add lime, how is it raising the pH? So pH is a measurement of free hydrogen ion that's in soil solution. And it's a logarithmic scale, but it's basically H plus so an acid. And so when you add lime, lime itself, uh, the liming portion is calcium carbonate and it's a carbonate piece that neutralizes the acidity that's, um, that's there in soil solution. Um, as Caleb mentioned, how much lime you need does depend on the texture of the soil that you have because there's like this reserve acidity, extra hydrogens hanging out there that can be released into soil solution. Um, and this is one reason why it's important to look at a lab when you have your soils tested to look at using a lab that it has both testing methods and recommendations that are geared for our climate and soils. Um, you can get at the hardware store a test that will measure that pH level in the soil, but it doesn't then tell you how much lime to add to raise the pH a certain amount. And that does depend, uh, as we've talked about, on soil texture. So that's a, a very important piece. 
Well, I'd, I'd say um, for folks who maybe just got overwhelmed with thinking of chemistry, if you remember making a volcano back in grade school science, uh, it's the same idea that bake, your, the lime is like baking soda and the acidity is like the vinegar. And once you add it, you, you're actually neutralizing that, that acid and it, you're creating carbon dioxide, which is those bubbles that come out. So when we lime our soils, we actually are turning that carbonate in the, the lime into carbon dioxide and that's escaping to the air and we're also creating water at the same time. Then in terms of uh, soil testing labs, uh, I, as well as extension, uh, myself here at MOFCA, uh, I recommend always the University of Maine soil testing lab. It's all the testing that's been geared for Maine uh, and uh, it's where many of the surrounding states, uh, universities send their soil tests to as well. I wanted to be able to have a description of what we're talking about with the liming because I feel like that's something that's just commonly thrown around, right? Like, oh, you're going to need to lime that soil. But what is, you know, just get thanks for the description to kind of ex explain what does that actually, actually mean. But I also know that there's some different types of lime and we usually talking about different nutrients that are, say, calcium and magnesium that, that are in that lime. So... Are there different situations where you may be you know, recommended from your soil test to use one versus the other? So if really what you need to do is to raise the pH, then um, calcium carbonate or regular calcitic lime is typically uh, sufficient. If you're also low in magnesium, then you'll see the recommendation for a high mag or dolomitic limestone. Uh, and of course, there are other materials and there are conversions listed from UMaine, at least listed in terms of liming requirements if you want to use something like wood ash instead of a lime. It does, uh, how quickly the lime reacts does depend on um, the type of grind it is. So finer material reacts more quickly in the soil. If it's coarse material, it will take longer. Um, pelletized lime is finely ground, but then bound together, but still fairly soluble and will react relatively quickly. So some, some folks like to use that because it's easier to handle than a powder. I think most gardeners are going to get either a bag of pulverized lime, which is just a powder. It feels kind of like baking flour um, or the, the pelletized, which is that same material just turned into a pellet. And that's kind of like the, the common lime you would see at the hardware store, for example. Yep. And, and actually, uh, because it's typically the same grind size, the same particle size, uh, it, the release rate will actually be about the same uh, for both materials. Um, and that release rate is something that if you had a coarser ground lime, it, it would have that same liming effect over time, over a longer period of time. You are tuned in to Common Ground Radio. And today we are talking about the basics of home vegetable gardening with guests Caleb Goosen from MOFCA and Cara Fitzgerald from UMaine Cooperative Extension. And since this is a pre-recorded show, we are not taking phone calls today. Thank you. Most plants, um, most of our vegetable garden plants, so especially these days, I talk mostly about growing vegetables rather than flowers and things like that. So most of our um, vegetables prefer soil pHs around 6.7, somewhere in that area. So just a little on the acidic side of neutral. Um, but potatoes tend to develop, they're more prone to developing a disease called scab. It's an external, it shows up on the exterior of the tubers. Um, sometimes it's just cosmetic. Sometimes those scab lesions can go 
deep enough into the skin that it's more than one peel's worth if you want to get rid of it. So at uh, more neutral pHs, uh, many varieties of potatoes can develop that disease called scab. And one way to manage it is to grow them in a soil that has a fairly low pH, but we're talking, you know, like around like five or 5.2. Um, the challenge with that is that it's really difficult to rotate with other garden plants. Uh, other vegetable garden plants. Sweet corn is about the only other vegetable that will tolerate pHs that low. Yeah, for dedicated potato growers, um, they often will manage their soil in that, that low pH range. Um, they actually, because the phosphorus is less available, they have to fertilize even more phosphorus to make up for that lesser availability. Um, there are some dedicated home gardeners that really love their potatoes and they'll actually make a dedicated potato plot that they keep very acidic and they unfortunately that means they're not rotating their potatoes in and out of the rest of their garden. Uh, the other common garden plant that this often comes up with, there are some some ornamental uh, plants like rhododendrons that like acidic soil, azaleas, but the common uh, edible gardening plant is blueberries. Um, and that's why blueberries do well in our native acidic soils. Uh, and they tend to do poorly when they're in a spot where the soil pH is too high. Uh, and so if you were actually taking over someone else's property, you'd bought a new place and you wanted to plant blueberries and they might've limed, your soil was neutral. You'd, you'd have to add something like elemental sulfur to get the soil pH low enough for the blueberries. And that's a little different than potatoes where the potato plant is happy in the neutral range but it doesn't get scab in the acidic range. Blueberries, when you put them in that neutral soil pH range, they, they have evolved to no longer have the ability to release their own acids from their roots to mobilize iron from the soil and take it up. Uh, so they will get iron deficiency very quickly uh, unless there's enough uh, free acidity in the soil to do that, that mobilization of iron that they need. Uh, Cara had mentioned earlier about wood ash maybe bringing soil pH too high in some gardens. S many of our composts in Maine uh, are made also with seashells uh, and seafood waste, and that can act as a liming agent as well. So if you've been using a compost for years and years and years and years that has seafood waste in it, uh, your soil pH might start to be creeping up. And when you get into that, that you know, pH of about eight or somewhere in there, uh, we start to see different nutrients are less available to the plants. Things like iron, which, and other metals where you need a bit of acidity to make them uh, in a form that the plant can take up. Caleb, I just wanted to ask you just a little bit about the compost piece, the use of compost in the soil. Compost is in some ways, it is both a source of fertility. It's not a very concentrated source of fertility most of the time. Um, a lot of fertilizers are ranked, uh, or not ranked, I should say, they are uh, labeled for what the minimum fertility they're providing for nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And that's, you know, if you've ever heard someone say 10, 10, 10, talking about a synthetic fertilizer, that's 10% nitrogen, 10% phosphorus, 10% potassium. Compost we think of as 
you know, it can vary widely uh, based on what was put into the compost, how well it was composted, whether it was protected from water or if there was a lot of rain that maybe leached some of the nutrients out. But uh, in general, we kind of just assign a value of 111, 1% nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. So it's not a, uh, a very powerful fertilizer. Uh, it's not very concentrated. However, if you're using compost or manure or composted manure over years and years and years, you do build up uh, soil organic matter that does have a lot of fertility in it. And as it breaks down and reforms and, and cycles over time, it gets a little more concentrated and it can continue to release those nutrients uh, as they go. Many folks who are interested in no-till organic growing are using compost uh, as their fertility source, but they're also using it as a large mulch. Um, so they'll maybe apply several inches of it, which is a lot of fertility. Uh, that's, that's a lot of material. So if it had all become available that year, it would honestly be probably too much, um, but it's breaking down over time. In some ways, that's kind of like a, a jump start to your soil health. You could take a, an unhealthy soil and just dump a lot of compost on top of it, and you at least have a, a healthy level on top, layer on top, and it'll start to percolate within. It's maybe not the most cost-effective way. It's also, it's definitely not the most cost-effective way unless you have a really great nearby supply. Um, and uh, it also maybe isn't the best in terms of the most efficient way to get nutrients to your plants or or the most uh, long-term perspective way to build soil health and so soil organic matter, but it does get you there quickly. Are there any issues with too much compost? There can definitely be some issues with too much compost. When it dries out, it can become hydrophobic. So it's really, compost is great because it, it adds a lot of soil moisture holding ability. Um, but when it dries out, it actually can become a bit hydrophobic. So if you don't keep it moist uh, consistently, it'll actually start to repel water and it can take a long time to re-wet it and be able to get it to accept water again. Uh, it can also be a pollution uh, potential. Um, you can have too much phosphorus, more than your garden's gonna take up in many years. And uh, if it erodes and enters into a waterway, that becomes uh, runoff. It basically becomes fertilizer runoff that uh, is the potential for algae blooms or other issues. Car, did you have something you wanted to, to add to the compost piece? Well, one big one that I see is what Caleb mentioned about um, with that, with really high organic matter soils, sometimes they do, uh, they are hard to re-wet. Um, it's not the same material, but if you think about like a potting mix, I, I have this problem with like hanging pots where they dry out because they're a pain to water and you try to re-water them and they, and it takes a long time to re-wet them. It's not as significant in the soil uh, where you have a mixture, but um, the re-wetting, um, also if you have a mixture of really high organic matter soils, say in a raised bed, and then you've got some lower organic matter soils in the ground, and you're managing them both. Sometimes we think we just manage them the same, and we can't do that because they do act differently and they hold water differently. And I guess the third piece is that 
there are two more pieces. So a third piece is that sometimes we'll get in some decomposition organisms in high organic matter soils where we've added a lot of material. And um, those organisms, whether they're uh, arthropods like springtails or you know, very small insects or microorganisms, they don't care what the organic matter is, if it's compost or if it's a plant root, they're just gonna keep working on stuff regardless of what it is. But also if the compost is not fully mature, it may contain some um, materials in it that can be toxic to young seedlings, uh, or there may be in the decomposition process that may lead to buildups of microorganisms that are taking in extra nitrogen and making it unavailable for the plants to use. So do be careful about the source of compost that you choose and make sure that it's a finished compost and it's something that's fit to go straight into the garden rather than needing some more time to sit. We typically recommend that compost be used sparingly. Um, my colleague Mark Hutchinson talks about using it uh, like a sprinkling of pepper on your mashed potatoes and have it just be a sprinkling on the garden. Um, and, that's, and many gardeners like to add a lot of organic matter to their gardens. And that is an added expense too. Kara, you had mentioned, I think, kind of locations or maybe the plants in the right space. And I know that oftentimes some questions come in with people that are maybe in more of a suburban or suburban area, smaller yards. Do I actually have enough sunshine? Do I have enough actual space to, to put in a garden? And Cara, if I could just ask you in terms of, okay, if you wanted to start a garden, what are maybe some of those basic parameters that you might want to have in place? And are there things that you could tweak to make it more, more suitable for growing some, some home vegetable crops? Yeah, for growing vegetables, the first thing I suggest that people look at is how much sun they get in different parts of their yard. So for warm season crops, and that's what the re reason why a lot of us grow a garden is our tomatoes and our peppers and squash, cucumbers, those kinds of things. Uh, they really need at least six, preferably eight or more hours of full sun every day to do well. If you're content with leafy greens and plants like that, you can get by with less full sun or some light shade, uh, but more hours. And if you don't have that, you will really have um, challenges growing good vegetables. So if you're limited on space, that's a time to be looking at maybe some container gardening. I know some folks who will have containers along the edge of their driveway because that's where the sun is, uh, rather than trying to stick a garden in the back under the trees. So looking at sunlight, uh, looking at the soils, so decent drainage, uh, ideally not too, uh, not too well-drained, not too poorly drained, um, not if you're growing in the ground, Try to stay away from the trees, not just because of the shade, but because they will compete for water with the roots that go underneath the garden. And they're very efficient at getting the water, more efficient than your annual crops will be. Uh, and I guess the last thing I think about in terms of location is not too far from your house. I have a colleague who says that your garden should be in your front yard so that you see it every day when you come, come in and you can't ignore it. Um, the farther away it is, the harder it is to get down there to look at it and keep on top of challenges. So if you don't have a good spot, some options are, like I said, containers or raised beds that can help you if you've got soil issues, uh, but they can't help with the sun piece. Kayla, did you have anything to, to add to the location siting? I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, 
I usually usually phrase things slightly differently, but it, it all comes down to the same thing. Um, you know, I, I say if I, I think of plant leaves as solar panels, and the plant is trying to make enough pan solar panels that it can use that energy to make fruit. And if the fruit is what you're trying to, to eat, you're never going to get it if you don't have enough sun. Whereas if you're in a shadier spot, that's why the leafy greens are a good suggestion there. Because um, that, that's what the plant's trying to do anyway, is make more solar panels to, to collect more energy. And then the way I summarize putting it close to the house is that the farmer's footstep is the best fertilizer. Meaning the, the more you're out in your garden, uh, the the better it's going to do because you're going to see, oh, actually, it's a little dry. It looked okay from far away, but I need to water. Or, oh, look, here's the first of this one squash bug. I know if I take care of this now, I won't have to take care of many more later. So you mentioned if you maybe don't have great sun and you're thinking about some container gardening or raised beds in better locations within your property, but you still don't have fantastic sunlight throughout the day. Some of the crops that can be grown, it seems like you mentioned leafy greens. Are there some other crops that, that would do well in that situation or well enough? Many of the herbs, right? Anything that it's primarily a leaf, dill, cilantro, basil, um, somewhat oregano, although those, some of those med more Mediterranean herbs really like it warm and it's harder to get that in the shade. And I chime in with that, at, for especially for new gardeners, it's important to prioritize what you grow based on what you like, what you can grow, what kind of gives you the biggest bang for your buck. And if you look at cost per unit, herbs are very expensive, fresh herbs um, at the store, at the farmer's market. So if you only have a little bit of space um, or time to manage something, herbs are a great way to go um, to really get a high impact um, from a flavor standpoint in your cooking um, and really reduce a cost for that. Of course, if you're looking for really growing a large amount of your food supply, that's not the way to go. Um, so, but it's important for new gardeners to do that thinking about what are my priorities in the garden? What should be taking up the most space? Within those different crops, whether you are you know, limited on sun and location or you have plenty of space and, and plenty of sunlight, when we get thinking here in terms of spring in Maine, what are the, we talk a little bit about kind of timing of some crops. Some things are gonna be able to do better first thing, seeded in the soil. Some things probably started as, you know, seedlings and transplanted later on. Um, did, uh, Kara, could I ask you to maybe speak a little bit about kind of the early side of things and, and what are some of the crops that, that do well early on and are planted early on in the, in the season for us in Maine? Yeah, so the, the date around which we work is the anticipated last frost date in the spring. So that's um, approximately for my part of the state, maybe second, third week of May. It depends on the season. Um, and based on that frost date, you look at the plants that can go in before that frost so they can tolerate some frost and then the ones that need to wait until after the risk of frost is done. Um, and so for the things on the early side as you asked about 
things that can tolerate some frost. Obviously, peas are one that we talk about. People try to get peas in as soon as they can work the ground. I'm sure there are people who had their peas snowed on this year. Um, many of the leafy greens, so spinach, things that are in the broccoli family, so whether it's braising greens um, or mustard greens, things like that, uh, radishes. Um, things that can tolerate some a light frost include uh, like beets and carrots and even potatoes. And then um, uh, on the late side are, are really our warm season vegetables. And for those, we typically suggest that people wait even a couple of weeks after that anticipated last frost date to make sure that they, they um, won't get frosted and killed. And Caleb, I don't know if you want to talk about what those are. Sure. Uh, I would say that uh, some of that is the, you know, just because it, it, they don't get frosted doesn't mean they like it. Um, Good point. Yeah. Cold stress is a, and chilling injury can definitely happen. Uh, a lot of our, our desirable warm season annual garden crops are tropical originally, and uh, they just do not like cold weather. Uh, they're not, they're not evolved to, to tolerate it very well. Um, so you could start tomatoes and throw them in outside right now and if you didn't have another frost they would be very unhappy even if they sort you know so so a they'd be likely to hit get hit with a frost but b they'd be very unhappy and you'd probably get better performance from the same exact plants put in a little bit later when it's warmer out um, so a lot of those uh warmer season crops uh are are the ones that we like to think of uh, as classic garden crops. Um, the nightshade family, which would include eggplant, tomatoes, peppers, uh, the cucurbit family, which is going to be squashes and, cucur and cucumbers. And then we've got, you know, there's all sorts of oddballs out there. Uh, sweet corn is a little bit of a, could go into either camp a little with some flexibility, uh, but for most home gardeners, I would say put it out later it's gonna, it does better when it's warm. Uh, even though it has a growing point that's very low to the ground and therefore it can often survive a frost, it doesn't mean it's going to do well. Uh, you're usually much better uh, aiming to plant it later. Cara, I'll have a question for you in terms of, we talked about frost in that air temperature piece, but there's also a soil temperature piece as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So many plants, so most plants will need higher temperatures for germination than they do for growing. So having the soil warmer will, to a degree, there are limits, but will help the anything direct seeded to germinate faster. So one of the challenges, like Caleb mentioned, sweet corn that maybe can tolerate the cooler temperatures, but sweet corn seed in the does need warm soil temperatures to germinate. The longer the, the seed sits there in the ground, the more likely it is to rot or to get eaten up by an insect uh, or die for some reason. So having the warm enough soil temperatures is really pretty critical too. And so one or two warm days in April does not necessarily good planting time make. The, the nice caveat, the, the flip side to that is that if you have the space and the time to start things indoors um, where you can keep it warm and give them the germination temperatures they want, uh, you can put seedlings out after they've germinated and um, often find success even if your soil is not quite at the temperature you would have direct seeded them at. 
So that's a, the big difference between direct seeding and transplanting for a lot of things. Um, and sometimes that's more of just, you want your tomato plants to be the, as big as they can get before they go out when it's safe for them to go out. Um, but other times it's uh, like, I, I recently planted some peas that I had started indoors. And so now they're up, they're growing and they're, they're happy. Uh, and I didn't have to wait for the soil to be quite as favorable for them. They're doing a lot better than the ones that I direct seeded. I can understand that because I direct seeded some about three weeks ago that are just starting to poke up through the soil. And I imagine the ones I planted last week will be uh, catch right up in no time, I think. They probably will. As things move along, that's, that's my experience, but you're kind of itchy to get things out there and in the ground. <laughs> I would say for uh, most home gardeners, uh, when they're, if they're thinking of these warmer season crops, uh, and they haven't started them yet. Uh, it's a great, it's, it's still a great uh, way to get started to just buy transplants from a, a nursery or a local farm that sells transplants. Um, there are some resources on the MOFCA website as well as the University of Maine's extension websites of where you can go to, to find some of these seedling sales. And just buying four tomato plants can save you a lot of headache and a lot of heartache uh, versus trying to get them started indoors. Uh, not that, uh, so uh, primarily as you're a new gardener, uh, it, it's nice to have that at least as a fallback. And I, I, I would agree, S starting seeds at home is kind of a different skill set than uh, getting the garden up and running. And if, you're, if your emphasis is on production outdoors this year, I totally agree. Uh, you know, find a reputable source of seedlings. Um, they are, folks are still selling them this season. Uh, and there'll be lots of great stuff available for people to purchase. You are tuned in to Common Ground Radio. And today we are talking about the basics of home vegetable gardening with guests Caleb Goosen from MOFCA and Cara Fitzgerald from UMaine Cooperative Extension. And since this is a pre-recorded show, we are not taking phone calls today. Thank you. Okay, now that we've talked a little bit about some garden, some soil basics, some garden basics and timing of different crops, um, Caleb, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the crop rotation piece, because that comes up in terms of managing gardens well. And uh, if you could just kind of explain what that means and maybe even have some examples on how a home gardener could do some crop rotation uh, rather than a farmer scale. Sure. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned farmer scale uh, because crop rotation is one of those tools that's very, very important on the farm. Um, it's also important in the garden, but it's a little harder to accomplish in the same way that we think of it on a farm. Because on a farm, you might be uh, going to a, moving a certain crop to a different field the following year, and that field could be even a mile down the road. Um, and so you're, you're really getting a large distance uh, as well as a, a, cha a change in time. So you're rotating in space as well as time. Uh, in the home garden, that's a lot harder. Uh, so some of the reasons we want to practice crop rotation are to uh, balance what kind of nutrients we're removing from the soil, as well as uh, what kind of and, and where in the soil those are, are being removed. 
another one is to try to avoid pest pressures. Um, uh, one classic example of that is just flea beetles. Uh, they, they tend to, if you grow something in the brassica family, the broccoli family, um, flea beetles tend to love them and they will feed on them and then overwinter somewhere nearby in the surrounding area. If you then grew brassicas in that same spot the next year, they would, um, the next generation would emerge and uh, jump right onto your brassica crop. Um, if you can rotate further away uh, and then hopefully use row cover to exclude the flea beetles, um, then you're, you're kind of in the clear because they wake up where the, the, four, the last year's brassica crop was uh, and then try to find this year's. Um, so that's one where it's very important on the farm scale and it can be important on the garden scale, but a lot of that depends on what your garden is. Um, if you have some plots in the front of the house and some in the back of the house, that might be enough room for that, you know, okay, I did brassicas out front this year, I'm moving them out back uh, next year. That, that might work. But if you're just talking about a, a 10 by 20 garden, you're that's not really enough to rotate away from a pest like that. Um, the other reason we often rotate is because of uh, diseases. And so that, it depends a little bit on what kind of disease we're talking about. Um, and this is true for both disease and pest issues that some of them overwinter here and some of them don't. So uh, there are gonna be some that, it, it's good to know what disease you've encountered in your garden to know okay, is this something that I can rotate away from? Is this something where it doesn't matter? Uh, and then you can consider to rotate uh, either, again, in space, rotate to a different area, uh, or in time. And what I mean by that is uh, maybe you have a lot of brassica pest and disease issues building up, so maybe you take the year off growing brassicas. Uh, and that means you don't have brassica plants that the disease and the pests will feed on, and their, their population should really crash. And uh, hopefully the following year, you can go back to brassicas. And I know for some folks, you know, and that's just an example. You, it could be any plant family. Uh, for some folks, they could be thinking, that one crop, that's the only reason I garden. Why would I give it up? Uh, and that's where I would encourage uh, uh, cooperation with a friend. Uh, you know, there's no reason why you can't grow all the onions for both households this year and then they have to grow all the onions for both households next year or something like that. that that's a, a cooperative way to manage a crop rotation. So I kind of went into some of the specifics, but in general, the idea is that a lot of pests and diseases will affect many different crops within the same crop family. Um, so if you have a lot of nightshade crops, you want to rotate those as one block. You know, put, keep your nightshades, your tomatoes, your eggplants, your peppers in one part of the garden, um, and your tomatoes, those are nightshades as well. And then the following year, you would move those to a different area of the garden. And the idea being that pests and disease that might grow on them will hopefully be left in the, the spot that you grew them last year and uh, have a harder time finding them this year. I'd like to ask Caleb another question around uh, cover cropping and the use of green manures. And if you could maybe explain, explain what those terms are and, and how they might be used in that home garden scale again. Cover cropping and green manures. 
are another growing technique that are often thought about uh, for large farm scale use. Uh, and they're used for a lot of different reasons. Um, one of which is to build soil organic matter. Uh, and that's both because you're growing a plant that you'll later incorporate into the soil and that will add organic matter from the plant tissue. Uh, but the other reason is that as the plant is growing, its roots, its, when it has living roots in the soil, they're exuding sugars and carbohydrates and other things that are actually feeding soil life. And that's what's building uh, long-term stable organic matter in your soil and helping to build soil structure. One of the reasons that cover crops are grown uh, are in your crop rotation, you might want to follow something that you had fertilized heavily with a cover crop and that way uh, it'll help take up whatever nutrients are freely available in the soil and prevent them from leaching out or uh, washing away. And uh, in that sense, it can be acting as a green manure. Another related use uh, is to grow a legume as a cover crop. And a legume is a, it's another crop family. Uh, and legumes are unique in that they have the ability to fix atmospheric nitrogen in the soil in a form that plants can take up. Um, so that's, that's a whole story into itself, but legumes uh, make little houses on their roots for bacteria that can fix nitrogen into an ammonium and uh, ion, and, and then the plant can utilize it for, as fertility. So if you grow a legume cover crop, you can then incorporate that into the soil and help add nitrogen to the soil system. So it's a good way to manage, manage nutrients, whether it's the scavenging and kind of storing or actually adding, adding to the soil. And then I'm sure the benefits of having cover over that and cover compared to bare soil also helps manage some of the erosion pieces you may see during the season or Erosion, soil compaction, other, other soil health issues are impacted. Uh, it's anytime a soil is bare, there's potential for the soil to be compacted, to erode, to lose nutrients. So uh, having living plants on the soil as much as possible tends to, to benefit your soil health, your soil structure uh, in general. Okay. And are there some, some of these cover crops that you think are uh, suitable for the for the garden scale? It can be tricky to to get cover crops in in the garden um, for a couple of reasons. One is the, the lack of tractors and tractor implements that many farmers use. Uh, the other is that a lot of folks are trying to maximize their garden as much as possible. So they, they often don't have much bare soil because they always have a crop in. The cover crops that I try to recommend to gardeners are actually the ones that, not that the ones that necessarily grow easily, although they often do, uh, it's more because they're easily killed. Um, because that's usually the hard part, is killing the cover crop so that it doesn't become a weed uh, as you're trying to then grow your main crop. Uh, so if you have time in the summer, buckwheat is a very common cover crop. It grows quickly. It can help smother weeds. So instead of that bare soil where weeds can just live freely, it'll, it'll help, it'll sprout up very quickly and shade out other weeds. Um, although 
for any cover crop, you do have to keep an eye on it because weeds can still pop up underneath it and you don't want them to start setting seeds. You may end up with a, a larger weed problem than you started with if you're not keeping an eye on it. Buckwheat is good because it'll be living roots. It'll add a little bit of organic matter, but it actually doesn't add that much organic matter. Uh, but it, it will smother and it, it can also be cut and used as a mulch. And that's true of almost all these cover crops. Uh, so one approach a, a home gardener might take would be to grow their cover crop, whatever it is. And then before trying to terminate it and incorporate it into the soil, they might want to cut it um, either with a weed whacker or a sigh or something to, to then you could utilize it as mulch. Um, and then that's slowly incorporating the above ground organic matter into the soil. Whereas the rest of the crown and the roots, that's what you're, you're adding into the, the plot you grew the cover crop on. Another cover crop that I would recommend for home gardeners, um, particularly because it's a little bit easier to kill than some of the others, are peas, common peas or oats, or a mix, a peas and oats mix. And um, that's one that's really good for the end of the season where you've grown, you're, you're, you're pulling your tomatoes out anyway. So you plant peas and oats, maybe before the tomatoes are out, you can seed them into the ground around them. Um, and those will survive a few frosts and grow into the fall. The, the peas can fix some nitrogen because they're a legume. The oats will uh, help scavenge nutrients and then they'll actually winter kill. And uh, come spring, you'll have this nice mat of dead peas and oats, um, depending on how large they got before they, they winter killed. And uh, it often degrades really quickly and you can plant right into it or you can just prep your garden as normal. Um, probably the most common cover crop on a farm would be winter rye, and that stays alive throughout the winter and starts regrowing in the spring. And that's one that's really tricky for a home garden because of that. And that's why we often recommend peas and oats, because peas and oats will be dead in the spring and you can garden as normal. But with uh, overwintered winter rye, uh, if it if you let it start growing again, it before long, it'll become... Uh, the grass that's overtaking your entire garden. So as we're getting here towards the end of the show, uh, I want to take a minute to ask you both about some educational resources. So Cara, if I could ask you a bit about the uh, Garden Chats program that Extension has been offering. So, so the Garden Chats we ran through April and we're going to be continuing through May. So it's Monday mornings at nine, Wednesdays at noon and Thursdays at six in the evening. And we have uh, a theme for each week and different topics. Um, and that's a Zoom link. So you can connect by your computer or by a phone number. And uh, it consists of a short presentation from an expert. And then open time for questions. And so we've covered a lot of ground on soil fertility, on basic gardening. And so it's a great way to connect with some fellow gardeners when we're trying to be physically distant from each other, um, but still have a way to share that, that love and curiosity. And then the other piece that we've that we just launched last week is the Victory Gardens for Maine series. And that's set up as um, a set of videos by Memorial Day weekend, we will have a, a set of four that should get new gardeners able to get out into their gardens and planting successfully. Uh, so it's about 10 to 15 minute video portion. 
And then to support that around the state, we're having virtual office hours. Every county is being represented and every day there's a chance where folks can call in and ask questions related to um, that uh, Victory Garden series or about other general vegetable gardening questions. Okay, and I imagine all of those links and and resources can be found through uh, the UMaine Extension website, correct? Yes, so our so UMaine Extension's Growing Maine Gardeners webpage has links to information about the Victory Garden uh, series, about the virtual office hours, and about the garden chats. We try to make it a one-stop shop, especially for new gardeners. Caleb, I just wanted to ask you about a couple educational resources for home gardeners. Um, I know that you have been uh, have been holding these gardening Q and A sessions, virtual sessions uh, this spring, and I, um, I'd like you to just maybe explain a little bit of that to folks and and how they may may join because there is one scheduled for May fourteenth at seven p.m. In response to the the virus issues that have, have made in-person educational opportunities hard to, to put together. Um, I started offering a once a week Q&A session um, and it's, it's very free form. Gardeners that are new, gardeners that are, have been gardening for a long time show up and ask whatever question is uh, on their mind about their garden and we try to, try to answer to the best we can. Okay, so I'd like to thank uh, Caleb Goosen, Mofka's uh, organic crop and conservation specialist for, for being on the show with me today. So Caleb, thanks again for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'd like to thank Kara Fitzgerald from uh, Humane Cooperative Extension for being with us here on the show today. Thank you, Kara. Thank you, CJ and Caleb. Uh, nice to talk with both of you and I hope you both have great gardens this year. Thanks, Cara. You too. Always a pleasure. Yes. Take care. This has been Common Ground Radio, brought to you by Mofka in conjunction with WERU. Thanks for tuning in today. Common Ground Radio can be heard on the second Thursday of every month at 4 p.m. here on WERU. Uh, so please join us again next month and stay tuned for more great programming. Thank you. <laughs>